May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Now we, we often talk about wanting to be able to hear God's voice more clearly, even maybe audibly in the way that he spoke to Abraham and Moses and Paul and so many others. Now this morning, Jesus is speaking in a very clear voice to the disciples, calling them to follow him and learn from him. And like it or not, he is speaking to you and I too. So after John the baptizer was put in prison by Herod, Jesus decides maybe it's a good time to get out of town. So he heads north, preaching that same message of repentance that got John in trouble. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was in Galilee, which is in the far north of Israel. And it's from this place, not from Jerusalem or from Rome, but far from the center of things at the outer edge that Jesus' proclamation of the gospel starts. The light of Christ will dawn over that northern horizon. So Jesus has come to a strange place to do a strange thing, bringing the light of God with him, calling disciples to follow as he proclaims the coming kingdom. This is as we say in the South, just not how things were done. (laughs) Traditionally, Jewish rabbis were sought out by their future disciples when the would-be followers were still teenage boys at the oldest. And only the sharpest and best among them would have been invited to become disciples of a rabbi. But Jesus Walking by the sea is calling grown men with jobs and presumably families. He's seeking them where they are in the midstream of their lives. They're not the best and the brightest. He starts with just these guys getting ready to go to work by the Sea of Galilee. He called these men to join him, and from this point forward in the gospel, Jesus will never really be alone again until he is abandoned in the Garden of Gethsemane. So his whole life and ministry are not just about sort of the great man theory of history realized, but about the community of believers and supporters that he gathers around himself. Jesus has this characteristic of always wanting to invite others to give their best, to share their gifts, and to share the work. All of his ministry is, in this way, a sharing with co-laborers. And his work makes space for others to come along and offer what they have. They may not be the best and the brightest, but there is something that they can contribute to the life of the kingdom. And the call that these disciples hear, the call to be a disciple of Jesus, is clearly always twofold. First, to leave everything behind to follow him. And second, to learn from Jesus how to fish for people. 
So first, there's this business of leaving everything behind. And it does indeed start with business. In the case of these men, giving up everything to follow Jesus is not just a clever kind of catchphrase or formulation. It is a reality. For the first followers, discipleship means leaving work and family behind, walking away from whatever other plans they might have had and following the Lord who is calling them. One of the things that happens to us, I think quite often when scripture starts to mess with our worldview, when it gets a little bit too close for comfort, when Jesus moves from preaching to meddling, we turn his words and actions into symbols or metaphors. But leaving everything behind to follow Jesus is not symbolic for these guys. Simon, Peter, and Andrew, James, and John drop what they are doing and follow when they're called. We know from other gospels that James and John were known as the sons of thunder. Do you think that means that their father Zebedee was a pretty laid back character? <laughs> Do you think that he was very supportive of the sudden loss of his workforce when they quit the family business to join up with Jesus's merry little band of ne'er-do-wells? I somehow doubt it. And yet, they do. I think if we have found it relatively easy to carry on with our own 21st century American lives and also consider ourselves disciples of Jesus, perhaps it's because we have not left anything behind at all. But we have taken the life that makes us comfortable the life that we enjoy, and have dressed it up in a kind of veneer of Christ-likeness and decided to bring everything else that we have along with us on the journey. And that makes things, of course, very easy. If becoming a disciple of Jesus is simply about throwing a kind of shroud over the parts of our lives that might not fit and trying to sneak them on behind... Yeah, that does sound like a pretty tidy way to be a disciple. If we don't have to give anything up, who would not want to join that kind of program? But discipleship truly always calls for a certain level of self-sacrifice. Otherwise, it wouldn't be that difficult at all, would it? Following Jesus always calls us to pay a cost that's not just imaginary or theoretical. The great German theologian and preacher Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, before he was imprisoned by the Nazis in a death camp for joining a plot against Hitler. But Bonhoeffer was clear that there was a cost to be paid for following Jesus, that making him not just savior of your eternal soul, but lord of your mortal life would come with a cost. Bonhoeffer famously said himself that when Christ calls someone, he bids them come and die. It cost Jesus, of course, a dear price to walk the path of discipleship set before him. And almost all of the first disciples paid that same price, giving their lives for the sake of the gospel. Now, that's not the sort of thing you want to put on the first page of your recruitment pamphlet. But being a disciple of Jesus, gaining the new life that he promises, asks us to make a genuine commitment. 
And we should be prepared to make sacrifices ourselves, not just of our time or our money or our attention, but of anything that might keep us from following our Lord. And not all of those things that we give up will necessarily be bad for us on their faces. There might be friendships or habits or thoughts that are not clearly negative in and of themselves, but that are counter to God's call in your life that have to be set aside in order to walk this path of discipleship. If every wrong decision or misstep came clearly labeled in big, bold letters, do not do this, it will end badly, we would never make any mistakes. But that's not how the world works. I can remember when I was a younger man, when my father was trying to scare me to the straight and narrow, he would often say, no one gets out of bed and thinks, today I'm going to ruin my life. (laughs) And it worked. So part of becoming a disciple is learning to listen for the Holy Spirit. Learning to make better choices to set some things down and pick other things up. That kind of submission to the voice that we hear from God will eventually change our character over time. We know this to be true. If you make the right decision over and over again long enough, eventually you start to form positive habits. For example, if you brush your teeth twice a day, every day, in the morning and the evening, Gradually, over time, it just becomes what you do. In the same way, we can grow more fully into the character of who God calls us to be with repetition. It becomes almost like second nature. And the promise that we're given is that the life that comes from following Christ in that steady, repetitive, faithful way is actually better for us than the life that we might hope to create for ourselves, relying on our own strength or resources to accomplish it. So that's the first task of discipleship, to give up the things that might keep us from following Jesus. And if you think that sounds easy, you're really going to love this next one. So the disciples are called, secondly, to become fishers of people. Not for a kind of cannibalistic consumption, but to bring others into the community of discipleship that they have joined. This is similar, of course, to the instructions that Jesus gives in the post-resurrection Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, at least one issue seems to be that Jesus does not say exactly how his disciples are supposed to do this. In the Gospels, Peter is sort of characteristically the most rash of the disciples, right? He jumps out of the boat when he sees Jesus walking on the water. He's constantly volunteering to do things without knowing really what he's getting himself into. He is the most headstrong of the disciples. And I like to imagine him when he hears this decision, this description of what he will do, I like to think of him looking at one of those large fishing nets that he's mending on this first day when he meets Jesus and starting to pick it up to bring it with him when he hears what Jesus says he'll do until Andrew kind of gives him a little, a little shake of the head. 
And Peter nods sort of slowly and puts the net down. That's probably not how you're going to fish for people, Peter. But the implication is that by following Jesus very closely, the disciples will learn to do this. That by being with their new master, they will develop the kind of winsome presentation of the truth that he himself has given them. After all, the invitation worked in their lives. So in light of this fact, we have to ask ourselves this kind of pointed question. If we are committed disciples of Jesus, who are trying to follow him, when was the last time we had any success catching any people? Not just as a collective body, not just as the church worldwide, but as individuals. We are the hands and the feet and sometimes even the voice of Christ in the world today. And we're the ones who have to make that invitation to discipleship to help others identify and celebrate the ways that God is already at work in their lives and call them to come and see what God might do in and through them if they joined the community of other disciples. Now that invitation when delivered by human beings like you and I, has to be accompanied by a kind of genuine and faithful vulnerability on our part. Because if the outward visible quality of our lives is opposed to the words that we say, or the Lord that we claim to follow, we're going to be really bad fisher people. Our lives have to get into alignment with the love that we proclaim if we ever hope to bring anybody into the boat for the sake of Jesus. Now, Christians are, of course, notorious for being big talkers when it comes to this kind of evangelism. We tell ourselves that we would do anything to help non-believers come to know and love Jesus. But all too often, we then immediately go about building up barriers that make it harder to keep people from knowing the Lord. The first step that we all have to take is to be ready to talk honestly about our own faith, about our own experience of knowing and being known by Jesus. That means we have to be able to talk about our joys and our fears, our weaknesses and our strengths, the seasons of abundance and the seasons of poverty. Because being authentically who we are while also pointing to Jesus Christ is the best way forward. And when we can combine that kind of radical, authentic honesty with faithfulness, it's like fishing with dynamite. And if that sounds like something that takes time, it is. But the good news is that it's a calling that you can grow into over time. If we are able to take the warmth of the love of the Lord that we so readily share with one another and turn it outward to share it with non-believers, even those that we already know, I'm convinced that what we would see would be a revival. And I don't mean revival in the most general way, as in a revival happening around the country or in our denomination. I'm talking about in this community, in this church, in these pews, 
If you and I were willing to be disciples of Jesus who are following and learning from our Lord, who have adopted his attitude of gracious invitation, there's no telling what God might decide to do in and through us. It need not be just a dream. Lives could be transformed. Families could be restored. Broken hearts could be made whole again. And all of that can happen only when we're willing to put everything else down and go where Christ calls us. If we submit ourselves to him, if we follow where he leads and we become fishers of people as he calls us to do, then there is no limit to the power that can be unleashed. That power, the gospel of hope and freedom and liberation, is the great light that is breaking forth into a new and glorious dawn shining on people who have lived in the shadow of death. That power is the hope of Kitsap County and of Washington State and of the whole world. It is the secret sauce. It's a great sorrow to me that so many people hear about that kind of life and feel as if it is not for them convinced somehow that the liberated and free life of love in Jesus Christ is promised only for a select holy few. That it is somehow like a Christian multi-level marketing scheme, not meant for everyone. But the fact is, it is indeed possible to follow Jesus and to discover a life that is abundant and refreshing and incredibly good. In following him, we will find that we were made for bigger and better things, not for what we might have thought we had to settle for. Instead, we will find in Christ a life of meaning and purpose that is given direction, not by our work or our intelligence or our family name or our finances, but by God himself. Life with Christ is life lived to the full. A life of joy and abundance and audacious hopes and expectations for an incredibly good future. It's a life where you can give up everything and find that you have lost nothing as a result. It is a life of true fulfillment. And that's the life that Jesus offered Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John, it's the life that he is offering to each of us. If only we are willing to receive it. He is still calling even today. Come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people.